Well, today we are on to the final message in the Christmas Traditions series. You know, I hope that through this series you've gained a better appreciation of the traditions that we have that are part of Christmas that we utilize. From, from the gift giving, to the Christmas stockings, to the Christmas tree, to the nativity, and on and on from all the different traditions that we've looked at, including even the tradition of Christmas itself. And I hope through this you've came, come to understand that it's not so much about putting, um, or making, uh, or putting Christ back in Christmas, but rather it is about making Christmas about Christ. As we learn through this series, we discover that so many of the traditions that are part of the Christmas, Christmas uh, uh, season, so many of those traditions were not originally Christian in nature. For example, the, the Christmas celebration itself was originally a pagan thing that Christians adopted in as part of the celebration. But one thing that has stood out abundantly clear through all of this is that the one overarching theme amongst all of these traditions, even among those fewer that started originally as part of being Christian, such as Advent, all of them had as an overarching theme among them is evangelism. And so as we look at this time of year that we are celebrating the most probably one of the most important components of life itself and that is Jesus God taking on flesh to live and to die for us sinners this time of year is a time of year that most people are more willing to talk about Christ than any other time of the year so why not utilize the traditions that we all utilize anyway we all practice anyway to point to Christ well, today, the one tradition that we're looking at falls outside of our thinking in most modern American Protestant churches, and that's Epiphany. I know personally, before I started research on this series, I looked at Epiphany as some Catholic tradition, some Catholic celebration that had nothing to do, nothing at all to do, with Protestant faith. However, as I studied this this tradition, this holiday of Epiphany, I came to find out that it actually predates what would be considered the modern-day Catholic Church. In many parts of the world, this tradition, Epiphany, it has significance. It is a significant part of the Christmas celebration. And in some places, Epiphany even outshines that of Easter and Christmas both. Because among those people who, where it does outshine, they understand that Christmas and Easter, well, they're celebrated because of what Epiphany is about. Epiphany falls on January 6th. It's about the arrival of the wise men to worship Jesus. Not that that was the date that they arrived, but that was just the date that was chosen to celebrate it. Constantine, during the 4th century, he almost ruined the holiday with the teachings that he gave. He, he changed who the wise men were into making them royalty, kings. The song, We Three Kings, well, it's a result of Constantine's teachings. However, that really wasn't who those men were, and we're not even told how many there were for that matter. Even their names are something that have been added in centuries later based on a misunderstanding of, as part of the practice of Epiphany. But when he changed those, those, those wise men into royalty, it had a significantly negative effect on Christian, Christianity. 
If you remember, I talked about this before, how it was royalty during the uh, uh, Dark and Middle Ages that would, uh, they would exact a tax on the poorest people in the land based on the arrival of the wise men bringing gifts for Jesus, the King. And they then uh, saw that as, well then, because they brought gifts to the King, we need to be given gifts as well. And so that was part of the reason why for so many centuries, Christmas was not exactly a happy holiday for the poorest of the people in the land. For centuries, royalty abused what was taught in Scripture and turned Christmas into something about themselves. And in many ways, even made it more of a celebration, as we talked about before, more akin with Mardi Gras than our modern understandings of Christmas. And once again, if you've heard me talk about these people multiple times, Prince Albert, the German uh, prince, and the English Queen Victoria, it was because of what they brought to the world stage in the 1800s that changed how people, Christians specifically, began seeing Christmas in general differently, but even Epiphany differently. differently. Now, in, in the modern world, Epiphany carries, in many places around the world, more of the majesty of God than what it has for centuries past. One of the best places in, in Scripture, one of the best passages to, to read that brings this understanding of Epiphany to life even better is one that takes place only about 40 days after the birth of Christ. Joseph and Mary were doing what was uh, normally expected in the Jewish world. They were taking Jesus to the temple for the ritual purification. Well, Jesus and Mary both. And God had already been at work in the background to orchestrate something that from an un uh, from somebody who doesn't understand what was going on at that time, it appears as if there's this chance meeting. But the reality is God was at work. Luke chapter 2, verses 25-32. through 32, Luke wrote these words. He says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what was the custom of the law, the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people, Israel. You see, God had revealed to Simeon that he wouldn't die before he got the opportunity to see the Messiah. And then, even more, the Holy Spirit further revealed to him that the infant those parents were carrying was the very Messiah that he was looking for. And what he said in his prayer in verse 32 really is, it really shows the significance of Epiphany. Simeon called Jesus God's salvation and the light to Gentiles. God's salvation. You see, it was God's plan from before the beginning of, of creation that He would do what was necessary to save us. God already knew that, because He knows everything, that we as human beings would choose to reject God's love and go about life our own way. And so, 
before God laid the foundations of the earth, God had planned to provide the way for us to get out of the mess that we ourselves created. He had already planned, you see, to pay the penalty that was due, the price that was owed for our sin. A light to the Gentiles. This was a significant statement to first century Jewish ears. We miss it in our modern understanding because we don't live we don't live in that world. You see, their national pride, the Jews, it had caused them to see themselves as God's only chosen people among all of humanity. Now, that's an oversimplification, and it sounds horribly bad on them, but the principle nonetheless is still there. Their actions indicated that this really was their ideology, that they were the center of everything. They had taken away, by this point even, they had taken away the places God had given them for the Gentiles to be able to come and worship Him. If, you, if we look forward just not all that many uh, years, 30 years or so, into when Jesus' earthly ministry was going on, if you remember the cleansing of the temple, where Jesus went in and made the whip and chased the money changers out, See, what they had done is they had turned the section of the temple that was to be for the Gentiles to worship God, they turned it into a marketplace so the Gentiles couldn't be there and worship God. That may not have been their intent, but that was the end result. I highly doubt it was their intent. You see, they not only had done that, but they had also taken away God's high calling that He had on them to be His light into the world because when God placed them in that strip of land that He did, that was the crossroads of the known world. All of the nations of the known world traveled through where God placed them. He, he put them there so that His message of love could go out to the known world. But the Jews, well, they didn't, they didn't do what they were given to do. Instead, they kept God's message of love for themselves. They, they hold up in their religious cloister and didn't give out the message of hope that God had given them to give out. See, the wise men visiting Jesus was evidence of God's design. Gentiles being saved. See, God had the plan that the Gentiles would be saved. All of mankind would have the opportunity to be saved. That God would invite these non-Jewish people to worship Jesus, the Messiah, the King? Well, that's what Epiphany is about. God demonstrated for all the world to see that His desire was that those who are far from Him can and would be saved. That it wasn't so much about having the right lineage or maybe let's put it in a modern world, maybe the right ancestry or social standing or economic standing or racial background. That none of that mattered. All that mattered was a right heart before God. That God's plan of salvation was for everybody. Those two terms of God's salvation and being a light to the Gentiles those two terms, you see, spell out what it means to be a Christ follower today. For Christ followers, life is now about the message of salvation going to all people. That's what our responsibility is. That's what our purpose in life is. 
It is about joining God in His plan to save those who are far from Him. It's about God's plan to save those who are willing to respond to His invitation. You see, this is what life is about once we turn to Christ. As Christ followers, our purpose in life changes at that moment, as does our allegiance. We move from our allegiance to self to allegiance to God. We move from purposes for self to purposes of God. I believe personally that it is an impossibility to be a Christian and not have God's purpose as my own. That is an impossibility. To do that would be to repeat ancient Israel's mistake. What they did. They held the message of God just for themselves rather than giving it to the Gentiles. But God had given believers, He has always given believers, the honor and the privilege of helping others to understand the good news of Christ. That Jesus was born and died for the forgiveness of our sins. But we have to be careful as Christ followers that we don't hoard God's love. We don't hoard the message of salvation just for ourselves. I don't believe that we've really submitted to Jesus as Lord of our life until He is Lord of our life. All of our life. As Lord of our life, His purposes are our purposes. And as Simeon saw, Jesus' purpose was to take the cross on behalf of all who would believe. So what do we do with Epiphany then? What do we do with this, this, this tradition, this holiday? How does it affect us? How can it affect us? Well, I believe that if we want to understand what our mission as Christ followers is, we need to better understand about, well, what Epiphany is about. And to understand that, we need to understand the world that we live in a little better. Now, what I'm about to share with you is not new information. If you've been a part of my messages over the past three and a half years, you will have heard me talk about this on a regular basis. This concept, these ideas. Over the past 15 years, we've seen a drastic rise in those who would claim no religious affiliation. And those people sit in churches Sunday after Sunday, or sometimes only show up at Christmas and Easter, or maybe never attend church at all. But of those people that claim no religious affiliation. There was a recent study by a sociologist called Nancy Ammerman. She indicated that that group of people who claim no religious affiliation, they can be broken down into three basic groups. The first group only makes up 3% of that entirety. And this group is the ones we call the atheist group. And while they reject the idea that there is such a thing as a God, let alone the Christian God, they cannot escape the reality that their, their understandings of right and wrong actually come from God's character. The things that we understand as right and wrong, they're derived from and based upon who God is. The rest of that group that claims no religious affiliation can be basically divided into two subgroup, subgroups. The Golden Rule group and the Good Samaritan group. Now, the golden rule group, they follow the code, do unto others. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. For them, they tend to focus in on friends, family, 
direct neighbors, if they're a part of a church, it would include even their congregation. People, in other words, who are most like themselves. Their focal point is those they are closest to. Ones that they can relate with the most. Now that other group, the Good Samaritan group, they focus on doing good to those beyond their sphere of influence. They focus on sacrificing for the good of others. They focus less on those who are like themselves and more on those who are in greatest need from their perspective. Now both of these groups, they're affecting Christianity in America as a whole and churches in a whole. And the result of this is, as good as that stuff sounds, the result of it is they are pushing churches further and further away from the mission of Christ. They've changed the mission of Christ from evangelism into a social gospel. Their social group. Who they understand is most important. Now, many in church end up seeing that the greatest purpose of the church is meeting the needs of others based on their social gospel. Most churchgoers in America would vocalize the need for evangelism. However, they resist it in life and in practice. They push back from personal evangelism or from the church being evangelistic. The result? The result of the influence of these other groups is a greater emphasis on keeping things as they've always been in church. These people, they neglect doing what's needed to share Christ with those who are not yet here. Their vocabulary zeroes in on the saved to the detriment of the lost. Instead of seeing the purpose of the church is making disciples, they instead see the purpose of the church is the disciples. However, as Simeon's prayer pointed out, Jesus is the light to the Gentiles. In the Jewish mind, that was the equivalent of, let's put it into modern understandings, it's the non-Christians. Those who are not part of church. Jesus was the light to those who aren't saved. Jesus is the light. See, that was Jesus' purpose. To save all who will believe. This then must be the purpose and is the purpose of the Bride of Christ, the church. To do all we can to reach all we can. So what does the Bible say regarding how the church should go about this? I believe that uh, one section in one of uh, Paul's letters to the church at Corinth does a very good job on helping us to understand. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, Paul wrote these words. He says, Though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the slave, I become like a slave... Become, I'm sorry, to the Jew, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I become weak. To win the weak. And here it is, here it is. Listen to this this sentence. He says, I have become all things to all men or all people, 
so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the Gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Both of those groups, the Good Samaritan group and the uh, Golden Rule group, they have influenced churches in America in negative ways. They've had a significant impact on the ability of churches to make maturing disciples. They've had a negative impact on that. Because they see caring for the needs of some, or sorry, caring for the needs the same as sharing the message of Christ, many have a greater passion for the 99 that are already saved to the detriment of evangelistic efforts to reach the one that is lost. It's the reason why 85 to 90% of in, in churches, why the battle cry is leave it as it is, rather than what can we do to share Christ. If asked, most American Christians in churches would say that evangelism is important. And they would even see that what they're doing is evangelism. However, when our efforts are yielding no new, new disciples, we must change what we're doing. We must re-examine what we're doing. If what we're doing is not making new disciples, then we must do something different. If we continue in what we want, when the lost are not being found, the reality is we've made church all about us and not about the mission of Christ. And when the call to arms in churches is anything other than the mission of Christ, that church is no longer the church Jesus died for. You see, the church is the body of believers. And it is to be living out the purpose of Christ. Our gatherings, they have a purpose. And that purpose should be Jesus' purpose. Make disciples. Simeon knew this. That, that the Messiah was coming to be a light for those far from God. We have a tremendous opportunity to reach those who are not yet here. But this is a choice that we, those of us who call ourselves Christ followers, this is a choice that we must make. We must choose the mission that Jesus gave us over a social gospel. We must choose to say that bringing others to Christ is the most important thing that I can personally do. And even beyond that, bringing others to Christ is the most important thing the church can do. The social efforts, they should be part of what we're doing. They must be part of what we're doing. But they must always be pointing toward Christ. Our purpose must always be the Kingdom of God. If the focus is on keeping people who are already here, here, at the loss of those who are not yet here, well then guess what? This is our kingdom, not the kingdom of God. However, if the most important thing that we can do in life is to win others to Christ, then let me tell you, nothing else matters. Don't miss me in this, okay? We have a mandate to care for other people. We really do. Believers and non-believers. However, I don't believe that it should be one or the other. That we should look at the care for others, whether it is helping believers to grow in their faith, whether it is helping to provide for the needs of others, whether it is helping provide for the emotional fill-in-the-blank, or whether it's those outside feeding, like through our food pantry. 
I don't believe that has to be one or the other. I believe that we can care for the needs of people and share Christ. So how do we do this? Well, we do it by first of all understanding that we have a mandate from Christ. That mandate is to make disciples. Jesus said in Mark 1.16, He said, I will make you fishers of men. And there's something we learn from that passage. He's saying, if you want to follow Me, if you're going to be My follower, then you will be a fisher of men. So, as a follower of Christ, if we aren't fishing, then we aren't following. If we aren't in some capacity helping other people turn to Christ, whether directly or indirectly, then maybe we're not really following Christ. The essence of being a follower or disciple is being someone who is part of making disciples. R.A. Torrey had once written, he said, I would like to ask what right a man has to call himself a follower of Jesus Christ if he is not a soul winner. There is absolutely no such thing as following Christ unless you make the purpose of Christ's life the purpose of your life. See, the reality is every saved person this side of heaven should be concerned with every unsaved person this side of hell. We can't avoid that. That was Jesus' purpose. Why He was born. Why He died. You see, Jesus also assumed that believers would share their faith. Acts 1.8 Jesus said, you will be My witnesses. You will be My witnesses. Not you might be my witnesses. Not even you really should be my witnesses. No, he said you will be my witnesses. It was an assumption on his part that his people would be his witnesses. It's the expectation all believers have that they would continue his mission. See, no Christian though should feel that they can't do personal evangelism. If you've been a part of these Christmas tradition series, you've heard me talk about this on multiple occasions. About how to share our faith. That I even summed up what the Gospel message is into a simple statement that Jesus was born and died for the forgiveness of our sins. If you want to understand better how to share your faith, go back on the Facebook page, watch the message from December 1st. The sermon titled, The Colors of Christmas or Christmas Colors. See, every Christian can and should witness as part of being an obedient Christian. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.6, he says, I plant, Apollos waters, but God makes it grow. See, it's not our responsibility though as we share our faith. It's not our responsibility that somebody else accepts Christ. That's on them, not us. Our responsibility as Christ followers is to make sure that we share the message of Christ in a relevant, meaningful, understandable way to the hearer. It is our responsibility to make sure that we share Christ. That we are what Paul talked about, all things to all people in order to save some. That's our thing that God will hold us responsible for. Our responsibility is telling. 1 Corinthians 9.22 Paul stated, he was talking about in that passage I read earlier, that we are to do whatever we can to bring others to Christ. That's, That's the gist of what he was saying in there. And yet, in some churches, they've taken this, this, this understanding to mean that we need to chuck the Bible out the window in order to bring other people to Christ. And I don't believe that's what we should do. Just because some churches chuck the Bible out the window doesn't mean we should. There's no reason for us to. Because the Bible is what teaches us this. We can teach the Bible. Change other things. 
in our efforts to bring people to Christ. The problem comes in for churches in that they make the mistake of worshiping created things rather than the Creator. In many churches, they become devoted to buildings, to furniture, to service times or locations, to decorations, to styles, and the list goes on and on. They become devoted and fight vehemently for those things to the detriment of fighting for the things that God is most concerned about. They go to bat for something in the church that doesn't have any meaning. See, what we need to do is we have to make sure that if we're going to go to bat for something, if we're going to, if we're going to fight for something in the church, we had better make sure that it's something God says clearly in Scripture. You should fight for that. And if not, maybe we shouldn't fight for it. See, if the church is just here for me and my own, my friends, those like me, those part of my social group, then it isn't here for God anymore. It's for me. But if the church is here to make disciples, well then those of us who are already here, our wants and desires, they matter a whole lot less. We live in a consumeristic society, don't we? You've heard this said many times. You read it everywhere. Our society is saturated with the ideology of looking for what's most appealing. It's permeated most churches in America, if not all churches in America. Often, though, it's practiced most by those who fight harder for what was rather than what could be or what can be. New churches and growing churches are often accused of being consumeristic. Consumeristic minded. That's why they're growing so much. But the reality is that the consumer mindset is what saturates dying churches. Even more so than those that are growing. See, these churches that are dying, they're dying because they have demanded what they want. They have replaced the Great Commission for a social club. They are more consumer-minded than growing churches. If the only people that a church has are the saved people, it shows who it is that they are reaching for. And if we have a church that is designed for people just like ourselves only, that is consumeristic. We must make the mandate of Jesus our purpose as individuals and as a church. Which then brings us to some, the next component that I want to look at this morning, and that is our motive. There, Jesus Himself had a motive. There is a motive of Christ. I want you to think of it this way. Imagine the difference that would happen if every Christian would see evangelism as the ultimate expression of loving Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul said, God's love compels us to be His ambassadors of reconciliation. It is God's love. If you already know God, if you're a Christ follower, then God's love is what is your, com your compelling motive. His love motivates you to do all you can to lead others. And if His love isn't motivating you, well then take a couple steps back and reevaluate your love for God. Because that's where you have to start. Jesus asked Peter at the breakfast by the sea one day, He says, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Jesus didn't ask Peter, do you like sheep? Do you like feeding sheep? Do you like handling animals and feeding animals? No. Jesus' question was, do you love me? If you love me, then this is what you will do. 
Hudson Taylor was once asked, Mr. Taylor, don't you think the one requirement for missionaries is that they love souls? He thought about it a moment and replied, he says, no, the one requirement for missionaries is that they love Jesus. If they love Jesus, they will love souls. He was talking about the lost. We love Jesus. The natural component of that is that we will love those who are far from God. See, you see, as Christ followers, our love for Christ is the primary motivation for evangelism. Loving Jesus will move us individually to do all that we can to lead others to salvation. But loving Jesus will also move us to do as a church all that we can. It will move us as a church toward being a hospital for the sick, the sinners in other words, instead of a museum for the saved. Instead of the battle cry, leave it as it is, we will hear instead from the halls of the church, what more can we do to reach the lost? Both God's love for us and our love for Him, that will be the drive behind that charge. It will be what motivates us to do that. Another consideration. What would, what would a church look like if everyone in the church led just one person to Christ and taught them to do the same. Think of it this way. If you invited somebody to join you on Sunday morning, they are more likely to hear the Gospel message sitting in here with you on a Sunday morning than they would if they were sleeping in and lying in bed. Here's another consideration as a component of that. If a gifted evangelist were to win a thousand people to Christ every day, it would take him about 10,000 years to win the world to Christ, ignoring population growth. However, if one person led one person to Christ in the course of one year and taught that person to do the same, the entire world would be led to Christ in 32 years bit of a difference there, isn't it? Not saying something impossible here. You see, we have to understand that if whenever God calls us to something, He also equips us for that. God never gives us something that He doesn't prepare us for. You know, as always, the Bible gives us some wisdom in here about this topic of leading others to Christ. I like how one translation translated Proverbs 11.30. He who wins souls is wise. Epiphanies about the wise men visiting Jesus. The Gentiles getting a revelation about who Jesus is. So as we're at the end of one year and getting ready to start the next year, might we choose to be maybe wise guys this year? Not in the funny way, but like the wise men. Understand what has been revealed to us so we can then take that message to other people and help them to have an epiphany, an understanding, a revelation. Epiphany means to show, to make known, to reveal. All the traditions of Christmas that we've talked about and many more, they all point to this reality. Simeon knew this when he thanked God for letting him see Jesus. Jesus was here. He came to earth to live and to die for our sins. He is a light for those who are far from God. And as His church, 
His mission is our mission. So if you're a Christ follower, you have the honor and the privilege of helping others to do what Paul said, be all things to all people in order to win some. So what can you personally do? As you're considering New Year's resolutions, what can you choose as your resolution this year? So that you personally can help someone else come to understand salvation through Christ. But then tied right in with that. What can you do to help this church make even more so the mission of Christ our mission? To move from battle cries such as leave it as it is or pursue what was instead to what can we do even more to bring the lost to Christ? What can you do to reveal Christ even more to others this year? 